You're listening to the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information. Thanks for listening, everybody. Welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. Uh, we're recording in D.C. this week at Chatter, the only podcast studio restaurant hybrid I've ever known. I'm here. Uh, Mark, you're recording? Thanks for recording for us. Yes, we're recording. <laughs> we're rolling live right now. <laughs> Our guest today is the uh, American University chaplain, Mark Schaefer. Mark, thanks for, for being with us. Thanks for having me here. One of the, the most interesting uh, facts about you and the reason why, why I have you here uh, with me is because you used to practice law. Technically, I still do. I still, I still pay my bar dues, so I still can hang a shingle outside my office, I suppose. But yes, I, I don't practice nearly as much as I used to. For sure. I mean, it seems like a waste of money. If you're That's correct. Yeah. Well, it's to it's honestly it's so that because I know people are going to ask me for legal advice from time to time, it's to avoid committing malpractice by offering <laughs> legal advice without the license to practice law. And you know, because if ever my family or friends gets into trouble, I want to be able to help them in some meaningful way. So that's why I keep the license up to date, and that way I've got that in my back pocket. Uh, so, so let's go here. How do you go from practicing law to, to a vocation? I mean, what changed your what, – what clicked in your mind? What flipped there? I was going to ask, how did I switch sides, which is a little unfair. Uh, I, I'm still a lawyer. I take that a little personally. But um, – Honestly, it was the intersection of questions of justice that did it. I was working in a law firm here in D.C., a smaller practice, um, with an attorney who was very active in the D.C. voting rights movement. Um, and so we would have conversations about D.C. voting rights, about um, possible solutions to the issue. And one of the things that occurred to me in our conversations was that there had not yet been laid a sufficient moral argument for district voting rights. And that is, before you get to the legal and political solutions for how you enfranchise the citizens of the District of Columbia, you have to actually get people to understand that the disenfranchisement of more than half a million American citizens um, whom, or who pay taxes, who are sent off to fight foreign wars, who are subject to all sure. federal laws and regulations, and have no vote in the United States Congress is immoral. So. I remember thinking, well, there's a role here for the churches uh, and for the communities of faith to get involved. And I had recently become a member at Foundry United Methodist here in D.C., which is a very active uh, church in the community. And I went and proposed to them a mission group to advocate for voting rights as a moral and ethical issue. I said we would avoid coming up with a political solution, you know, statehood or retrocession right. or virtual right. statehood and virtual retrocession, all that. So we will just simply make the case that this is an immoral state of affairs that the church should care about. And so they gave me the permission to create that group. We got a number of young adults involved in that. We mm -hmm. drafted positions. We had information sessions. And we actually were ultimately able to get the United Methodist Church as a whole to adopt our resolution as, a, as wow. its official statement on the issue. <laughs> um, but when I did that, I started to get noticed in the congregation, and okay. people started to 
invite me to be a part of this effort and that effort. And before long, people were saying, have you ever thought about seminary? Have you ever thought about the ministry? Um, and to be quite honest, I resisted as long as I could until I came to the realization that um, the law, as much as I you know, cared about it, was not fulfilling the vocational part of me. I guess I had done it because it seemed like a practical thing to do, but I don't know that it had ever really spoken to my heart. And so the ministry became the avenue for that. I think a lot of lawyers have that particular problem as well, that um, there's a mental aspect to practicing law. There's sometimes an emotional aspect to practicing law. And, a, and as somebody who litigates, um, I can certainly attest to the ups, ups and downs on that. Mm -hmm. And and even today, for example, I had a, a conference call with the magistrate judge and opposing counsel on the other side. And um, one of the defendants is also pro se in, the, in that representing himself in the case. And emotionally, you, you can go up and you can go down in the matter of, of minutes. But ultimately, then I hang up the phone and I'm like, well, we're still sitting in the same position we were a half hour ago. Absolutely right. nothing has changed. And so I can understand where sometimes practicing law isn't really all that all that fulfilling. How, how are you feeling not fulfilled in, in practice of law? You know, honestly, it, it was it's kind of a paradox to me because I was working with a great boss. Mm -hmm. I, I found the work interesting. Um, he was a good person to learn from and to work with. Um, we were doing interesting things on the D.C. level. We, were, uh, we had won a, uh, an award to draft some legislation to reform our regulatory structure. And, I mean, there were all kinds of interesting things that were going on. It was actually starting to make a little money, you know, things <laughs> like that. Um, I just think that in, in the long run, it wasn't what I was meant to be doing. And there was a, a part of it that where my days felt that they were the same. There was a kind of a sameness to sure. them that I found hard to kind of overcome. Um, but what's interesting is that when I went into the seminary, it was my legal training that I found helped me the most in deconstructing complex, dense theological arguments and in, in making ethical cases, you know, making ethical argument. Sure. I remember my Christian ethics class, our professor said, I don't even really care what answers you come up with to these questions. I just want to understand your process is correct. And all my friends turned and looked at me and said, you're loving this, aren't you? And I said, this is how I think. It's the process that matters. Um, and, and, and as somebody who's Catholic, I'm used to you know, bishops, archbishops, and, and cardinals who are lawyers, or at least have right. a law degree, and then also... right also went, went to the seminary. Well, I mean, for centuries, it was the same profession. These are the teachers of the law, right? I mean, these yes. are the folks who understood the, the rules. And in some ways, the lawyers in our society occupy the, the niche of the priesthood in, in an older, a more ancient society. You know, they know all the magic words to say, right? They, they understand the intricacies <laughs> of the, you know, the mysteries of the temples and to get things done in ways, and they occupy that kind of center place in our commerce and social and political life um, that would have been a priesthood in an earlier age. So I think on, on some level, it's the same career. I'm just, you know, working in a different organization. And <laughs> so, so what is the, what do you see as a crossover between justice and morality now that, you know, you've stopped practicing law? Because there are some times when, when practicing law 
is not necessarily very just. Right. I, you know, you and I were having a conversation about copyright law, and in the United States, if uh, one does not have a copyright registered, you can't even walk into court even if somebody is infringing you. Uh, worldwide, those statutes are, are written very differently. Right. right. Like, what's the justice if, you know, an artist can't, you know, can't get re re recompense for... Uh, for somebody else, you know, stealing and swiping ideas, right? For example, well, it's from a religious point of view, justice is the equal access to the levers of power. That is, it's the idea that every single person has the ability to participate in the community, um, to participate, to have access to the resources of the community, to have access to the influence on the community. Uh, the decision-making of the community, regardless of station, regardless of class, race, gender, sexual orientation, you name it. That that's, sure. that's a basic concept of justice. What a court system does is it's attempting to provide a just result within some construct, but that may or may not be the same as what divine justice of is. Of course. <laughs> right? and, and I think that's you know where... There is a need for humility in any system of justice is to understand that it is imperfect. Um, I know that there is there's a difference between the just result and the true result, right? Correct. Um, for example, if a person gets off uh, because the state was unable to prove guilt, that is the just result, but it may not be the true result. That person may have actually committed that crime, right? In which Absolutely case you have correct. set someone free who is in fact guilty, but in fact guilty and just guilty aren't the same thing, right? Because you want to, the, because the overarching thing is the state does not have the power to remove your liberty without having proved it. That's the just principle that is upheld by when a guilty man goes free from a crime that he committed, right? Understood. So, I, so I think part of it is also understanding that there are different levels of justice, and sometimes the system itself is just, even when the result is not, and that is that's something to bear in mind as well. So, I think you know when I look at the questions of morality and justice, it's about aspiring for that higher level of justice of of that sort of where is the system pointing toward? Is it pointing toward protecting the rights of all people or is it pointing toward enshrining the privileges of a few, in which case the individual just results don't matter as much as where the overall system is, is pointing? Understood, understood correctly. How does that then apply on, on your daily life um, as, as a minister? Well, I think what that means is that I have to be prepared to call out the systems that are unjust, not just simply the results. That it's it's and and to help people to understand that, for, from my perspective, so I'm United Methodist, a Christian denomination. That from my Christian perspective, Christians are required to speak out on behalf of justice. That means that we are about reforming the very systems themselves. This is an idea known um, as the social gospel, the idea that the gospel is not meant simply to convert individuals, but to convert entire communities to being more just, more righteous, more equitable. Um, this was a movement that you know, sought to end child labor, that sought to end you know, tenement housing, that sought to sure. end all manner of social injustices. Um, and aimed themselves high that way. So I think where my task is is to help people to understand that it is actually part of a of a living, thriving spiritual life to work for justice on a systemic social level. 
And when you talked about starting at at the church and getting that particular ministry off the ground, and then you said, well, then we got noticed by the entire Methodist church. I would assume that as a lawyer that helped you because there has to be a lot of procedure in that. Like no matter what the hierarchy is, yeah, you, you've got to deal with rules and you have to deal with procedure. And that has to, like for me, I would say the f- most frustrating part of litigating is dealing with rules and, and getting an, an email like the other day. Well, these 26, these rule 26 F initial disclosures aren't, don't follow this. And, and, and at some point I get, I get frustrated over the rules. And then when I join another organization, I, I tend to go, okay, I already deal with enough rules, so I, I want to get right. past the rules here. But but that has to help you in some aspect. Oh, yeah. Well. I mean, the, the church is a rule-driven organization like anything else. <laughs> I mean, it's a human institution. And so we've, I mean, the United Methodist Church has a book of discipline uh, which just sounds harsher than it actually <laughs> actually is. Um, now that I think about it, to outsiders, that must sound a little strange. Um, but the Book of Discipline is our constitution. It's our rule book. Okay. It's our it's our statutes, and it you know there are procedures for how things are done. And so what we do is so for example the the resolution I talked about that was something we had to get passed by my local congregation, and we had to ask them to forward it to the annual conference, which is the regional body. Um, but And they forwarded it to the regional body, and the way we had drafted it said, we call on the United Methodist Church to do to support you know, voting rights and so sure. on. And that language actually meant that that resolution then got automatically forwarded to the general conference because it, it called on the general church the resolution itself then went automatically to the national body that meets every four years, and then they adopted it as their position statement. So part of it is, you know, just drafting it correctly, drafting it in a way that moves it up through the through the you know chain of uh, you know authority in sure. the denomination. Um, other parts are knowing how to draft things so that people will be persuaded by the argument. You know, um, <laughs> not having eighteen million whereases. You know, and having sure. a num- and making building a case sort of because we start here that leads us here that leads us here. I mean, there are times when I've seen my legal career really influence the some of the things I do in the ministry. And then sometimes it actually works the other way around too, which has also been kind of interesting to see. How, how so? Well, so when I was in law school or in seminary, I still had a case that was left over from when I was practicing and we had an appellate level argument. We had oral okay. argument before the DC court of appeals. And, um, I had taken a couple of homiletics classes by then and had become much more comfortable with sort of, a preaching style that told a story. And so rather than get up and just read through my yellow legal pad worth of notes, I told the judges the story of the case. I walked them through it. I made it sort of a narrative that was understandable and, um, and even was able to kind of tie it all up in a nice little bow at the end um, in the way that I would have with a sermon on some level. (laughs) Um, And I think that that helped tremendously because it made it clear what the points were that I was going for, what the main thrust of the argument was, and helped the judges to center what their response ultimately was around the way I'd framed it. But I think that's something that law school doesn't do. No, it does, all that doesn't. Well. No. Even, even uh, boy, I'm, you're giving me flashbacks to my moot court class mm-hmm. and and my um, you know and my writing classes, and we don't talk 
about what the story is. We talk about the formalities. We talk about case citations. We talk about the holding of this case, and then it co compares to that case. But on the same token, you, you don't focus on telling your client's story and communicating that right. to whoever the hearer is, whether it's a, a judge or a jury. Right. And there's, there's something that you know, well, any professional has, right, is that it's what's called the curse of knowledge. It's where you know what you're talking about, and so you assume other people know what you're talking about. You are about. completely correct on yeah. that, yes. And, and I think Get that's three lawyers in a room, and nobody else can can jump into that conversation. Right. And, and so what they... Some, I mean, this Mark is, is where, sitting there bored at the two of us <laughs> well, right now. Well, I think what happens is you see... <laughs> so you're making a case to human beings though, right? Yes. You're making a case to human beings who may or may not understand the intricacies of what you've dealt with, especially when you're talking with a jury. If you can't translate that into ordinary experience, then what are you, then what are you doing even, you know? And I think that's, um, you know, that's a, a lesson from the preaching side of things is, you know, I can come at you with all the biblical interpretation. I can, I can explain who King Nebuchadnezzar was and why the Babylonian empire fell and all this right. stuff. But if it doesn't have anything to do with how you might be losing your job this week, right, then what does it matter, right? That's the, the whole point of this kind of proclamation and I think, and also the advocacy piece in the law is to be able to tell the stories of those who need help telling their stories, right? That's why people come to lawyers is they need someone to advocate for them, right? To yes. speak on their behalf. And so if we're not actually good at the vocating, at the communicating, then we're not being good lawyers. And so I, you know, I remember the legal research and writing classes and how they weren't focused on style or clarity. They were focused on checking those boxes, right? Yes. Do you, is everything blue book cited correctly? <laughs> did you, you know, did you italicize the period and ibid, you know, all that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know, I, I've never been able to tell the difference between an italic period and a non-italic one. Right. Um, but sure. like, what, um, what you see is that there is too much of an emphasis on the form sometimes with out an emphasis on how that form needs to be used to to serve the message sure. that's being made. Sure, and you know it reminds me. Recently, I I filed a case against um, uh, Kylie Cosmetics. Uh, that's a matter of public record because I did an interview for it. But recently, uh, I've been you know my client just sends me all of these news articles and clippings on the story or even YouTube videos. And there are a lot of people out there, and this is the interesting part, who who don't understand my particular area of law. And I know that intellectual property is very niche. And I understand right. that a lot of people don't don't truly understand it. And and I see videos that say things like uh, you know, company sues Kylie for, for stealing makeup. And it's like, no, 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 right. no. Right. That's not it. Right. That's not it at all. H how can lawyers you know, now that you've you've gotten this training from from multiple <laughs> professions, how how can lawyers communicate better, especially when we're in these these niche areas that I mean, the general public doesn't? There know? is there is a need for for lawyers and ministers and and other professionals to communicate better. There is also a need for journalists who can have the time to learn about these professions, because what I notice is that. Um, Science and religion have one thing in common: is that the articles about both are often 
incorrect. You know, yes. that where they they often claim that something has been done that has not actually taken place. You know, oh, the Pope changed the policy. No, the Pope articulated something that's been on the books for 700 years, or or scientists have discovered this. No, the scientists did nothing of the kind. You right. know, and so there's there's a lack of basic literacy in the culture about these things. So part of it is that we, we need more journalists because we need journalists who can actually take the time to focus on particular fields sure. and, and become expert in them. But then we also need to, in our professions, recognize that people don't actually understand what we're talking about. And to find and to think carefully about if I didn't know anything about this case, how would I explain what happened? You know, and how would I talk about the events that have taken place in ways that make sense to people without any particular knowledge? That's a hard thing to do. I mean, I know that I've gone back through things that I've written and said, "Wow, if I, you know, I don't know how anyone understood this. It was sure. so clear to me at the time, and now that I read it, I realize it's completely insider language and insider, even ways of framing things. Um, and it's tough. It's, it takes a lot of training to look at your own stuff and to ask yourself, what would this sound like if I didn't already know what I was talking about? No, I, and and I agree with you completely that it it is a skill that we're that's hard to grow. Yeah, very difficult. Uh, since we are running out of time, I will let you plug your book <laughs> because I think there's a I think there's a big I think there's a big intersection there anyway. So 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 tell everybody about your book a little bit. Sure, the book is called "The Certainty of Uncertainty: The, the Way of Inescapable Doubt and Its Virtue," and it is meant to address uh, the problems that people have with uncertainty, both those who are. Um, doing everything they can to stave uncertainty off or those who are feeling like they're drowning in it and that by doing so they're doing something wrong in their lives. Uh, The basic argument of the book is uncertainty is a fact of life and actually it offers us a lot of opportunity for more meaningful life when we embrace uncertainty and doubt than when we try to clamp down on rigid certainties in our thinking and in our belief systems especially. Um, And where I think it intersects is the willingness to admit that you don't know something actually opens you up to different kinds of relationships and different kinds of conversations than when you feel that you have to be the expert or the authority or have to have all the answers. Uh, it forecloses the ability, even in this conversation, to say, well, what, what, might, not I under, what might I misunderstand about this? Or what sure. might I not have considered about the way I'm making this argument? Um, is it really self-evident or is it possible that there's a lot of room for interpretation and doubt here? So I think that's, that's where they tie together for me. And, and, you know, where I see that a lot is when a potential client comes to me for a case and they say, you know, we talk about it and then they say, give me a percentage. I want to, I want a percentage to know what's my chances of winning. Right. I don't know the answer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I, I right. can sit there and I can make the arguments. I mean, I certainly know when when somebody has a you know a losing case right. for sure. Right. You know, you know something simple. Well, you've never registered your trademark. You've never registered your copyright. Um, you're you've been selling your your product for three years and you never filed a patent. So I I mean yes zero. Right. So, but I you know outside of that. The answer truly is, I don't know. I can make an argument. My job is I can make an argument to to the court. Right. If I can't do that, I don't want I don't want to handle your case because it's not ethically proper. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
allowing people to embrace uncertainty also allows them the opportunity to, well, it's actually, you know, it's the difference between uh, kind of a, a brittle strength and, and a resilient strength, right? Is the brittle strength requires on having everything figured out and everything known yeah. and certain. And those things snap or they, they crumble like houses of cards when anything is pulled apart. The resilient strength is the one that admits that it doesn't have everything worked out but commits to the course of action. Yes. Right? I don't know. We might not win this case, but this case is important, so let's go forward. And, um, and if it doesn't work out, we knew that going into it. And so we can rebound. We can try something else. We can do some other course of action. And I think that that's something we're not seeing a lot of um, in our day and age, we're seeing a lot of people who are feeling called to kind of entrench into these certainties, and especially in the political arena, where it's just not even possible anymore to admit the other side might have a point. You know, <laughs> is a, you can't even say, well, you know, that idea it's, it has some merit. We don't we don't agree with it, but it's not completely out. It's not you know completely out of the blue. But we can't even get to that point because that sounds like being a traitor to your own side sure. by acknowledging the other side might have some, you know, some small foothold in the truth. And, and I think if we can get to the point where we become comfortable with not having it all worked out, then that allows for greater community and for greater conversation. And how can, how can people find uh, your book? They can find The Certainty of Uncertainty. If they are in the D.C. area, it is at a number of our local booksellers. It's at um, Politics and Prose. It's at Kramer Books. Um, and is also at uh, Walls of Books DC, and it's available on Amazon and at certaintyofuncertainty.com. Are links to other online resellers, including the uh, the publisher itself, Whippenstock, where you can buy copies in bulk at a discounted rate. You've got that that answer in green, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it comes to the territory. Yeah, uh, Mark. Thank you so much for 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 coming on and and doing this interview with me. You're it's very welcome. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This has been the Law & Business Podcast. Visit VernaLaw.com for more episodes. To contact Verna Law PC, send an email to anthony at VernaLaw.com or call 914-358-6401.